Have your Bibles turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1. Uh, we want to exegete this passage and then make necessary applications. Uh, we've looked at Exodus 1. It was uh, a long, long time ago. Uh, it was pre-COVID, so that's at least 20 years ago. Uh, we went through the whole book of Exodus in like 13 weeks, uh, which I still can't believe um, we did that. Um, nevertheless, Exodus 1. So stand with me out of reference to God's Word. We'll read the whole first chapter. Sure, it's a passage we are familiar with. Moses writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the sins of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we gather this evening, uh, may we understand this text and apply it, and may we be a people who celebrate life. At the end of the day, it's not more complicated than that, that we believe in life because, as we saw this morning, we worship a king who is the giver of life, and he is light himself. So as we continue to fight in a culture of darkness and death, may we promote the beauty of life from the God of life who gives life, and may we apply this to our lives. So open our, our entire being that we may become more like Jesus. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Well, this is a text, again, I, I trust that we are familiar with. And it, is, it sets up everything like any good introduction would. It sets up everything else we, we get in the Exodus story. It presents to us the main characters. It presents to us the main conflict. And the conflict really isn't more complicated than a good versus evil, master versus slave, uh, the oppressed versus the oppressor. And right away we, we are told this. And we also understand that everything that, that happens as an introduction uh, picks up where we left off at the end of Genesis, which is probably where we'll pick up on our Wednesday night Bible study starting this Wednesday. You forgot, you thought I forgot about Genesis. 
um, that we have spent forever and a day on, on Genesis. Well, this passage really breaks down into two parts. The first part looks at the slaves, verses 1 and 2. And we are introduced to the group who will eventually become slaves right here in these opening verse. But they are not first introduced to us as slaves. This is an important detail. They are first introduced to us as the blessed people of God. If all we had was these first seven verses, we would assume these are the people of God whom God has shown particular favor to, and his favoritism towards them is as a result of their obedience. You'll notice there that the Jews enter Egypt uh, hungry and demoralized back in Genesis, uh, numbering about 70, uh, which is not a large number, as, as we'll see, particularly the number they become when they're in the wilderness. Uh, it, it's a large family for us. Um, I mentioned my, my great uncle um, uh, this morning. Uh, he is the last of that generation. And I was actually asking my parents at lunch today, like trying to figure out, okay, where does this, oh, they're all gone. Or, or no, we, you know, we have a very small family just on my side. Man, size is a little, little larger. But 70 would not have been uh, unusually large at, at, at that time. Uh, but by the time we, we come into Egypt, right, we have the 12 tribes mentioned there in verses uh, 2 to uh, 5. We then see down in verse 7, the people of Israel, this is after several generations of being in Egypt, they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, any student of the Bible should be familiar with that language. So what we have then is God turned the promised land into a wilderness. There was no food. It was a famine. And he moved the people of Israel into Egypt, which becomes a type of Eden. And they plant themselves in a type of garden we'll call Goshen here, the city where they dwell. And there the people multiply. This is a retelling essentially of the Genesis accounts. And so in obedience, contrary to everyone before them, in obedience to God's command, they are fruitful and they multiply. And so God blesses them. Now, we need to note here that the blessing of God is primarily seen in the multiplicity. Uh, Being fruitful is the blessing of God here. It's not that they had a bunch of kids, so God said, well, I'll help you pay the bills, right? That's that's, that's not how the blessing works. The, the, The gift of children in large families is the blessing in and of itself. And so they come to Egypt, a foreign land, and, and they make a garden out of it. They're planted in Goshen. And here is a bunch, a bunch of uh, 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 sheep herders and everything else. They, they're planted in, and God blesses them through Joseph and all that. But the real blessing of God comes in uh, their growth from one generation to the next. They continue to grow because they simply follow the mandate to be fruitful and multiplied. So from the perspective of God, an increase of children among the people of God equals joy and blessing. They are under and experiencing God's blessings. Doesn't mean their life is easy. What it means is, is that God is blessing them with children and fruitfulness. And what we need to see is that God is fulfilling the promises that he made Abraham here, right? Remember, you go all the way back to Genesis 12, I will make you a mighty nation. Abraham dies. He's not a father of many nations, which means he cannot be, you know, a father or a father of nations, right? If you're not a father of a boy, you're not going to be a father, or are you going to be a father of a nation, let alone nations? 
Here we see that one of those sons, Isaac, through him, we have what is the, 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 the makings of a great nation. And in order for that to happen, there must be, um, you know, the numbers to, to build such a nation. Um, and so here it is. We see these blessed people who will soon become slaves. We meet them and we think, isn't God good? Life is good. Children are good. Family is good. God's blessing is upon them. Well, what is to the people of God a blessing to others outside of the work of God is seen as a curse. And that's where the story picks up starting in verse 8. We move from the slaves to the masters. Now, we might think that being blessed by God always means being protected from anything bad happening to us. But again, that's not what is meant in the text by blessing. Children are the blessing. Fruitfulness is the blessing. So that blessing doesn't mean the people of God won't won't suffer. And so verse 8, Pharaoh is introduced. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, as you can imagine, there's a lot of debate over how to interpret this text, particularly archaeologically and historically. Everyone wants to know who was the Pharaoh during the time of Moses, all that sort of stuff. I've got some ideas. I've got like 40 ideas, and most of them are probably wrong and contradictory. So we won't chase that rabbit. It will certainly distract us from what it is that, that I want us to look at this, this, this evening. But one interesting thing is if, if you study the history there, there is a, there's, there's a, a, a major administrative change around this time, right? Again, depending on how, how if you do the early date of Exodus, late date of Exodus, if whatever, okay? One of those is uh, an outside group called the Hyksos takes over Egypt. And, and, and so some think, if you study how Joseph is presented before Pharaoh, right, he's taken out of prison and uh, his dress and his name and all that, that might reflect a Hyksos age. And so once the Egyptians boot out the Hyksos, the invaders, then you, you, you're going back to the good old days of Egypt. And that new king, Pharaoh, has no obligation or promises made to Joseph and his family. So what you get then is a new king in Egypt, as the text says in verse 8. I can't prove that. And, and, and some will certainly do a better job than I can at trying to prove all that. I find the historicity of, of the Exodus a fascinating topic. I'm certainly no expert on it. But nevertheless, notice in verses 9 and 10, Pharaoh's actions against the people of God who have enjoyed the blessing of God, they are rooted in fear. What the Jews see as God's blessings, Pharaoh sees as cursing. Now we hear this sort of rhetoric even today. And notice it there. He said to the people as Pharaoh, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now you need to realize who are the Israelites here? Now we know this archaeologically. We, we know there are Asiatic Semites from a land called Avaris. Here it's in the area of, of Goshen, but, but we call it Avaris. And we know a lot about them. And the main thing we know about them is they were shepherds. Now, shepherds know how to wield some weapons, you know, David with his slingshot and all that sort of stuff. But I'm not so sure they're the ones that you should be mighty afraid of, right? It's amazing, isn't it, that, that, that a king needs 
a nation to grow in, in terms of population, right? In within a decade or two, the United States, if population levels continue to decline, our population will begin to decline. And you want to talk about serious economic, among other issues that creates. Um, so enjoy your Social Security because I won't, right? Uh, and, you know, population decline is a major, major problem. It's a major problem. Just look at the Japanese economy over the last decade or so. It stagnates because of, of, of population decrease. Population is increasing in age, not enough workers. You don't care about that. But, 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 but Pharaoh here, he needs a multiplicity of people. He needs people to grow in population. But when they grow in population, he begins to be scared of them. And the text tells us there in verse 10, his concern is, is they are immigrants. They are outsiders. They are refugees. They're not one of us. They don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't vote like us. They don't live like us. They don't worship like us. They're immigrants. And so if we get attacked, let's say the Hyksos again, or some Canaanite uh, people group or tribe, if they come in, what will these Semites do? Think about it. If, if you're Egypt and you've got a group of Semites on the northeast corner of, of, of Egypt and in come the Hittites, in come the Canaanites with an army, in come the Syrians, the, the, the Sumerians, whatever it might be with this mighty army, the concern is, will they join them? Notice there, this is a real fear of the immigrants. And so he thinks we have to do something with it. Now we hear this rhetoric all over the place even today. Think about it. I've, I've got a buddy who lives, uh, he's a Yankee, he lives up in Michigan, in Detroit there. He's got like six kids. Um, his oldest and my youngest are roughly the same age. We've already prearranged the marriage, so that saves us a whole lot of trouble. I've told you that story before. We, we joked at the time, we went to go see their, their firstborn. You know, we, we had our little one. And we went ahead and signed the papers and all that sort of stuff. We said, you know, we don't really care about their happiness. I just care about who, who their in-laws are, right? <laughs> you, know, you know. Anyway, so, um, uh, but we hear this rhetoric. And he tells the story all the time that, you know, he's in a more liberal city. That, you know, he's got his six kids and the looks he gets. Like, don't you realize that you are the cause of, of climate change, Right? Do you realize that uh, the resources you are eating up to feed those kids? I want you to pause and really think about that. Is the planet more important than love, <laughs> than, than children? Is, 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 if, if, is, is, is resources, if they are to be used, should they not be used for the good of our children? And I'm sorry, who are you to tell me how many kids we should have again? I mean, it really is eugenic, this sort of rhetoric, right? And, and any family more than, let's say, three, so really four and up, they will all tell you this sort of language. And what, what, it, what comes out of that? This sense of fear and foreboding that you, not, not me, of course, because I'm righteous, but you are ruining this nation. You are ruining our planet. You are ruining this world. We hear the same sort of rhetoric today. The view then is that children are, just, are thus seen as a curse, um, rather than a blessing, a blessing. Now, that's why I would say I think there is a straight line between Pharaoh and Planned Parenthood in this text. You see children and say there is a way to solve this problem because children are a problem, and that is their elimination. Both see children as an invasion. And, of course, we've already touched on there is a fear of an immigrant. The fear of an immigrant, that they don't look like us, they don't act like us, they don't talk like us. And I find people on every side of the political aisle guilty of that. 
Well, verses 11 through 20, Pharaoh comes up with three policies. These policies continue to be practiced even today in tyrannical eugenic societies. And these three policies are set to mitigate the danger of, of, of the Jewish people. The first is slavery, verses 11 to, to 14. This is his first and his long-term plan. So let's pick up there in verse 11 in your text. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Now, I want you to pause there. Notice, suffering did not mitigate the blessing of God. I think this is something uh, Christians need to learn. Because Christians in America are more American than Christian oftentimes, we think bad economy don't have a large family. Good economy, have, have a large family. That is not how the Israelites thought. They thought, let's have kids. Kids are the blessing here. Right? And, and so slavery did not prevent them from seeing children as a blessing. Right? And we have evidence of Asiatic Semites in the land of Avaris who went from very wealthy and healthy to very impoverished and likely enslaved. And we've, we have evidence of this. So I do think there's some historical truth to this very fact. Now, the assumption of Pharaoh is probably if we subjugate them, they will be weakened. And the response of the people of God is, even if you subjugate us, our marriages will be strong and our families will be large. God will provide for us in the wilderness, right? That, that's the broad story we get of the Exodus, right? Going all the way from the garden, all the way to, to, to the return of the promised land. Regardless of the wilderness, whether it's a literal wilderness, as they will experience when they leave Egypt, or it's a spiritual wilderness, as they experience it when they are slaves. God will provide for them. God will bless them if they follow after him and obey his commands. Now, we know where Python and Ramses are. Uh, this is near where, where they would have dwelled in Goshen, Avaris, whatnot. But verse 12, but the more they were oppressed... The more they multiply, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of it. It's just fascinating to me, isn't it, to be scared of slaves. Historically, there's some real truth to this. Uh, one of the things the Romans refused to do was to provide any universal identification of slaves. I may have these numbers wrong because it's off the top of my head. I think roughly a quarter or a third of the Rome, Roman population were slaves, particularly in the city. And the concern was is if, if, if they had a mark or a certain dress or something like that, and they all could identify how many of them were slaves, Rome feared an uprising. Even without that identification, there were uprisings all the time. The most famous or infamous would be Spartacus, where that entire uprising, everyone involved was crucified uh, 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 next to each cross, touching each other for miles down the road on both sides of the road. It's a very brutal, bloody way to put down an uprising. But they are afraid of slaves, people who are not armed, people who are weak and, sub and subjugated, working in the hot sun, no power, no authority, no influence. What they see is the blessing of God, and so they fear so it goes in verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all the work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Can I just make another footnote here? According to the Bible, slavery is bad. Did you, did you miss that point? It's right there in the text. <laughs> Enslaving people is a bad thing. Somehow when people think they are uh, enlightened critics of the Bible, they seem to miss the obvious. 
How come the Bible doesn't condemn slavery? It condemned the subjugation of an entire race that were in slavery. I can think of a good application of that in the history of America, can't you? A group of people were chosen by their race and ethnicity to be slaves to a large, um, powerful state. I've heard that story before. And the Bible liberated them. (laughs) Anyways, that's just a footnote. You do with that whatever you want. Their lives are described as bitter, full of hard labor. And yet it all backfires. They continue to grow. This is an amazing manifestation of faith. So we see the first policy, that of slavery. The second policy we can call a silent genocide. A silent genocide. It starts in verse 15. We get the plan, verse 15, 16. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Now, why, why do we have their names there? We don't have anyone else's name in this chapter other than the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is because it is a way to honor these particular women as being bold, fearless, and brave. That's fair. We still do this as we honor heroes. Big and small, we we honor them. We honor them. That's what you get in the text. They are responsible for the saving of countless lives. There's another reason why I think we have their names, and it's to see that we don't have Pharaoh's name. Do you notice that? He's just Pharaoh or the king of Egypt. This is why there's massive debate over who is the Pharaoh of Moses. We don't know. Who's the Pharaoh of Joseph? We don't know. It's just Pharaoh. It's interesting, isn't it? The man with all the great power and might and strength and army, the superpower of the day, couldn't tell you what his name was. God didn't preserve his name. But the weak midwives, the enslaved women, we've got their names. In case you're interested in this sort of thing, uh, it is very possible that we have found these people. It's possible. Now, we can't prove it. Um, in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, you can find what is known as the Brooklyn Papyrus. Um, and it includes a list of Egyptian slaves, most of which have Hebrew names. Or, or yeah, yeah that, that's good enough. Hebrew-like names. One of those names is Shifra. Now, what I'm not saying is we, we, we know for a fact we found this Shifra and her, her, her uh, colleague in the faith, Pua. But it is to say that we know that there were Hebrew slaves in Egypt. We have a list of their names. And we have one matching on archaeological find, the, the Brooklyn Papyrus, and, and the name matching one that we have in the Bible. It's very possible uh, this name, um, uh, which means beauty, by the way, uh, it's very possible this was a common name, much like Mary is a common name in the New Testament, named after Miriam, by the way. But nevertheless, um, uh, these midwives help women give birth because they were more committed to the blessing of God than they were to the system that was seeking to oppress them. Pharaoh seeks to commit infanticide, yes, but more specifically, gendercide. And remember that Pharaoh fears that the men, in particular, might rise up, join an army to assault Egypt. So they are a threat. If you cannot subjugate them, we, we can eliminate them. Now, it might come surprise to you today that gender side remains a problem today. Now, what you get here is the gender side targeted towards men, little boys. In the modern world, or really even pre-modern world, really throughout most of the world, the target audience has been women. 
Study Roman culture where infanticide was a major problem. If, if a dad wanted a boy, he wanted the firstborn to be a boy, and his wife produced a girl, he had the legal right to take her out and abandon her in the woods to die of exposure or to be the, uh, uh, the victim of wild beasts. That was legal. To this day, due to China's one-child policy, which is now a two-child policy, because they realized this was a bad idea, who could have thunked it, uh, what you have is a decline in women. So what you have then are generations of young men who by far outnumber young women. This has been going on for several decades now. And so that is going to limit things like marriage and reproduction. Because I, I'm going I'm to shock your, your, you right here, okay? We need both men and women. That just blow your mind? That blow your mind. You realize that at the federal level, and I don't know about state level, federal level, there is no law against you walking into an abortion clinic and say, I want an ultrasound. Tell me if this is a boy or girl. If it is a girl, I want an abortion immediately. There is no law saying that that, that is wrong or illegal. And guess who is usually the victims of that? It's women. That's why I don't think abortion is pro-woman at all. It's usually the victim there. So this isn't anything new. Nevertheless, in an act of civil disobedience, the midwives simply disobeyed. Their Caesar, their leader, is asking them to do something God has prohibited, so they disobeyed. And so they, they, they just, the midwives, verse 17, feared God, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. It's interesting. They feared God, Pharaoh feared slaves. I just, just love that. Their fear of God made them fearless before Pharaoh. You get that. You've heard me say that before. You either fear God or you are fear man. And they, because of their fear of God, they did not fear Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who has told them to commit infanticide, could have them hung, could have them executed right then and there. They understand God's blessing was in children and in life. And so they just said, well, you can take my life. I'm not killing babies. Really not more complicated than that. So, so they did not. And so in verse 20, the plan of Egypt backfired. So God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very strong. So slavery didn't work. Genocide didn't work. So that leads to the third option, and that is the slaughter of the innocents. If, if you couldn't subjugate them, if you couldn't silently uh, 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 just kill them in private, you might as well do it publicly. And that's what you get in verse 22. In a single verse, we, we get just a horrendous scene here. And Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, he shall cast into the Nile, shall let every daughter live. It's the same sense, infanticide, gendercide. But now it's public. So it isn't just that he wants them eliminated. He turns the culture against an immigrant group by which are targeted for slavery and then are murdered in mass. I mean, this, this is horrendously evil. That has been repeated throughout human history. Now, the choice of the Nile is an interesting choice. In Egyptian life, not to mention Egyptian religion, the Nile was the source of their life. If you were to dam up the Nile, by which there is no Nile River in Egypt. Egypt could not survive at all. Egypt was the mightiest nation in all of Africa in the Middle East for a long time simply because of the Nile River. 
they had figured out that it, it would flood at certain times, would then allow crops to grow, and then, and then the floods would go. They then can go. And they navigated it. I mean, they had it all figured out. Um, the Nile was a source of life. In fact, if you were to look at a map of Africa right now, uh, like, like a satellite map, you're going to notice a lot of brown in the like, north-central part, and there's going to be this really green part at the top. That's Egypt. <laughs> and it's green because of the Nile River. It's a source of life. Pharaoh takes what is a source of life and turns it into a source of death. Now, I want you to know how we just inverted Eden. The story of Eden is a river flowed through Eden. And thus, in the heart of Eden was the tree of life. There at the river was life. But what Pharaoh did was he took this river that gave life and he turned it into a pool of blood. You know what would be really cool? If God literally turned it into a pool of blood. Don't you think that would be cool? I mean, it'd be ironic, wouldn't it? Let's just say he did it as the first act of judgment. Wouldn't that be wild? That's exactly what he did. It's, it's a way of mocking Pharaoh. He's saying, look, Pharaoh, you turn the source of life into blood. Metaphorically speaking, by killing babies. I'm going to do it literally. And so when Moses takes his staff, puts it in the Nile, he turns it to blood and murders everything in it. All the fish and everything else. Well, what are some final points I think we can make about this text? The first thing I want us to see is the people of God are defined by three things in this passage. Faith, family, and fearlessness. Faith, family, and fearlessness. Cultural circumstances never prevented these Hebrews from fulfilling the cultural creation mandate. Their circumstances did not mitigate their obedience to the mandate. God said, be fruitful and multiply. There's no ambiguity as to what that means. And God sees children, and therefore the marriage that produces children, as the blessing. I think I shared this a week ago, whatnot, and I saw a meme that really convicted me. It showed a, a, a family of like 10 kids, right? And they're all in like from the tallest to the shortest, right? And the meme said something like, we are so rich, you and I can't afford this like our ancestors did. That has bothered me ever since because it's true. We're so rich that we can't have more than, I think we're down to like 1.8 children. And yet our grandparents would have 10. Everybody was still fed. What does that tell you about our understanding of wealth and how we think we attain it? Cultural circumstances never prevented the Hebrews from fulfilling the creation mandate. Therefore, their faith had at its core family, and they were going to fulfill that mandate at whatever cost. And, and that this nuclear family made up of mom, dad, and children, male and female, husband and wife, was the bedrock of the Hebrew identity. After all, the text is introduced by sons, sons, the 12 tribes who became fathers, who became fathers of entire tribe that made up an entire nation. Their identity was tied to faith and family. And when that identity was challenged, they chose fearlessness. And it's interesting, isn't it? It is women who are perceived in ancient culture as the weaker of, of the genders, who are standing in front of a male pharaoh, fearless. 
So you see the weakest weak, uh, enslaved women standing up to the mighty Pharaoh and, and his, his army. And so they did not cower when their values were threatened. Their courage came from the fear of God. Evil laws then must be resisted and evil systems must be rejected. And there is no greater protest in this text or even in our lives than simply by living by fearless faith. The people of God have to resist any threat to life, not with violence, but with faith. I can prove that from the text. In the next chapter, Moses will try to deliver the people of Israel. Remember how he does it? He killed a man. He killed a man in Reno just to watch him die. And through that act of violence, Moses failed. Moses will later show up with a shepherd's staff. And without violence, he liberated an entire people. The people of God do not turn to violence, so we turn to faith, fearless faith. And that's what the people of, Egypt, of, of Israel had to discover in the land of Egypt. Secondly, the wicked fear the innocents. The wicked fear the innocents. Wicked systems and tyrants fear people of faith, and they fear babies. I want you to pause and really think about that. We as a society are scared to death that babies might be born. We've developed an entire system that is afraid we might have babies running around. Really just contemplate that. What is there to fear there? What is there to panic about? Wicked systems and tyrants fear people of faith and people who live consistently by their faith and babies. Because faith and children represent everything they stand against. Tyrants want unquestioned loyalty. They want worship. Wicked systems fear children they cannot control and a fearless people they cannot control. Throughout Scripture and history, the Exodus Pharaoh becomes a prototype. There have been countless others. The most famous, or we should say infamous one in the Bible, is of course Herod. You know the story, right? Is these guys show up from afar. Right? They're firemen. The, the, the Magi, they're firemen. They came from afar. And they show up and they're looking for the king of Israel. So they go to the guy with the title. It's on his desk and everything. And they go, we're looking for the king of Israel. And they realize this ain't it. And then when Jesus is two or younger, Herod does exactly what Pharaoh does here. Tries to eliminate any threat to his reign. He's scared to death of babies. That attitude hasn't changed at all. We're afraid babies may rob us of self-autonomy. We're afraid babies may require a little responsibility. We're afraid babies may grow up and not, not be, be controlled, particularly by people of faith whose loyalty trumps the system, the culture, the society. Therefore, they must be subjugated and eliminated. We can't let that happen. The age of Pharaoh is still in our cities. There's one last thing I think this text shows us. God's justice will triumph in the end. God's justice will win in the end. The Exodus narrative reveals God responds to injustice in two ways. And these, these aren't going to be enlightening. This is kind of obvious. One of the ways God responds to injustice is through redemption. Enslaving the Hebrews is an act of injustice. Why? Because slavery is bad. 
so that the critics of the Bible may understand me. The Exodus narrative is ultimately a story of God redeeming slaves and placing them into the promised land. In a nutshell, it's the story of salvation. We come out of slavery, we meet a God of redemption who then leads us through the wilderness into the promised land. That is basically our story as Christians, right? God has led us out of slavery by redeeming us from, from our sins. Um, he is leading us through the wilderness. And so the same temptations they face, we face today. Same struggles they had then, we still face today. Until eventually he brings us to the promised land where we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We, we, we're following the same story now. But notice here that the slaves do not resist Pharaoh. They simply obey God. More specifically, God delivers the Hebrew slaves by sending to them a deliverer. In fact, we left off in chapter 1, verse 22. It's a good stopping point. But notice here, after, after you get the, 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 the slavery, the silent genocide, and the, uh, the slaughter of the innocents, chapter 2, verse 1, remember there's no chapter breaks when this is first written. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now a man from the house of Levi, oh, from the house of the priests. Remember what we said about David this morning. He went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now notice there. By having a man and a woman, the implication naturally in verse 2 is there will be children. Because biblically, you can't separate those. A man left his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two became one flesh, and out of that union became multiplicity. Two became one, one became many. So he says, now there was this guy who's unnamed, right, in this text, of the tribe of Levi, we, we met Levi, the opening chapter one. He takes a Levite woman. Verse two, the woman conceived and bore a son. Notice already, how do we interpret this? Evidence of God's blessing. God's blessing in the midst of suffering. Intense suffering. Slavery and the slaughter of your neighbors. God is blessing this family. Suffering is not evidence of God's absence. Here we see God's blessing right there in the midst. Pharaoh can do nothing to stop this. He's got the CIA hunting for babies, and it just, it just won't, won't, won't do it. So she conceived for her son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him in a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, put the child in, and placed him among the reeds by the riverbanks. You remember what that word basket is in Hebrew, right? I've told you this a thousand times. Ark. Here we have a woman who builds an ark. And through that, who is through the judgment of waters, people are redeemed. The redeemer of Israel grows up in Pharaoh's household. God responds to injustice first and foremost by redemption. Likewise, if we were to turn to Matthew 2, we, we won't do that because I trust you're familiar with the passage. Herod slaughters the innocents, sends his army to go door to door to kill babies. All the while, a man of Judah gets a dream, says, take your child to Egypt, nonetheless. And when Herod dies, my deliverer will, will return. It's the same story. God responds to injustice with a redeemer. Christ comes, has come to eliminate all injustice. 
The second way he responds to injustice is judgments. One cannot deny that while he is protecting and liberating Israel, God is judging Egypt. The ten plagues that we've already seen are indictment against both Egyptian religion, so they had a gods with a frog head on it, so here's a bunch of frogs, now what are you going to do? Uh, he he judged, uh, they worship the sun. I'm just going to blacken it out except for in Goshen. Now what are you going to do? I'm more powerful than your gods. It's an act of decreation, much as like the flood was an act of decreation. An act of decreation that then led to the liberation of, of Israel. So, so it's, it's, it, God judged their religion. He judged their system. Pharaoh, as powerful as he was, was no match for the sovereign God of the universe, the God of slaves. It's an act of judgment. The water to blood is a judgment for drowning babies. The death of the firstborn destroyed the political system. An act of judgment. So the good news here is every culture throughout history has been a culture of death, unfortunately. You will struggle to find one that, that wasn't one of these. And we're no different as Americans. We live in a culture of death, whether it be an abortion pill on one hand, euthanasia on the other, assisted death or doctor-assisted suicide, you might call it that, where we see people we don't want, and so we think the answer is to eliminate them. Right now in Iceland, you will not find, hardly at all, a child with Down syndrome, not because of medical advances, but because of abortion. That is not just. God's response to that is for the people of God to promote and to believe in life because children are the blessing of God. This is why you and I are called the children of God. We have the blessing of God as the adopted children of God, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this job. But he responds with redemption to a people of God who promote life. He responds with judgment to those who would harm the innocents. So I do think as we approach not just every election, but our lives in general, we should be a people of life. Let it be that we are a church, that we drown out the music and the preacher because there are too many children singing, laughing, crying, and crawling in our pews. Because we want to be a people of life. Let it be that when we see large families, we celebrate, and we don't ask, hey, do you all know what causes that? We celebrate it. And when given the opportunity to protect the innocent, innocent lives that we may never meet in this life, Let us take that opportunity to see to it that they are protected by law or by culture. My hope is not that abortion is made illegal. It is that it is made unthinkable because life is precious. And whether we're talking about the unborn or the elderly, the immigrant or the refugee, the weak or the strong, we believe all are made in the image of God. And the blessing is in life. For Christ has conquered death by being raised from the dead himself. Let us, therefore, not be like Pharaoh. Let us be as fearless as these Hebrew women, these slaves. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to...